You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 28, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. And today I've got a little bit of an interesting show for you, a little different. Today is not going to be The Paradox. Today is going to be The Unidox. I had an interview scheduled for this week, and my interviewee was unable to join me. So it's just going to be me, but I had actually an interesting subject that I've been kind of holding back for a while, in anticipation that this might happen some week, and it's upon us. So we're going to talk about the Physicians Foundation study on physicians and their opinions on healthcare and sort of how their practice works. So we're going to find out who doctors are and what they're thinking right now, not just me, although that may be the most interesting to you, right? <laughs> so uh, as always, show notes will be at the paradox.com slash 028. You can always go to patreon.com slash the paradox. That's spelled the CS. Uh, there you can become a patron supporter of the show. All the money raised will become used for the production and the promotion of the show, and it'll serve as tremendous encouragement for me to keep going with the show, and I always appreciate that. As always, share with your friends and try and subscribe with your favorite podcast player. It's a great way to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can also go to my website and sign up for my email. Uh, There you can get notification that the shows have come out, and when I send other things, that's where I'll use. At this point, it's just notification of new shows, so you won't get your inbox filled with useless emails from me. So let's get into the show. And again, what we're going to talk about today is the Physicians Foundation. And I've had a lot of episodes on uh, the healthcare delivery system in the United States, most of them I'd say. And today's going to sort of be an encapsulation of everything we've talked about for the past six months or so. But I, it's going to provide some data. Uh, it gives me a chance to reflect a little bit on, on why, why people are thinking what they're thinking, maybe a little speculation. But it's probably to give a little bit more data as well to to what we've been talking about and to, so that you recognize more that if you're a physician, you're not the only one out there thinking certain things uh, or your practice is not the way 
you're not the only one practicing a certain way. But if you're a patient or a family member, you can have better understand sort of what physicians are going through. So I talked to Dr. Dearman uh, a while ago, very early in the show, when we talked about physician suicide. Uh, we weren't specifically talking about this suicide. We were talking about malpractice and how that may influence physician suicide rates. But the reason a lot of these issues are so important that we're going to talk about today is, is that it's important to remember that physicians are people. And so people have real people problems. You know, we have lives outside of the hospital or the clinic. And anything that causes stress or problems can reflect back on not only on our, our work, uh, but also things at work can reflect back on our family and our personal lives. And if you're close to someone who's in medicine, you know, if they're getting burnt out or potentially considering harming themselves, this is a real problem. And we have a suicide rate of physicians that is twice the national average. And that's unacceptable. Uh, there are other physicians who've addressed this probably better than I, and I think I will try and do an episode on this in the near future. But I think it's important to recognize that it is a problem. And so the things we're talking about are not just academic sort of data points, but they have real-world implications too, and personal ones that are individualized, not just a sort of collective agglomeration of um, data. So we'll get into to the 2018 Survey of American Physicians. This is sponsored by the Physicians Foundation, which has conducted this now, I think, four times. They do it biannually. So the first one was in 2012. They do ask some different questions. So not all data points can be compared to previous answers because there's some things that have developed that were not on the radar screen in 2012. I mean, some things are like, are you male or female? But others are obviously much different and that are, were not even, you know, again, things that people were thinking about. I just discussed all of this uh, and briefly during one of my bonus uh podcast that you can get access to through Patreon, but it seemed like such a big topic and it was so interesting that I think it was something worth exploring fully with the uh, the entire audience. So those things, again, are some part of the bonus materials you can get if you're a patron at the patreon.com. So anyway, let's get jump into it. So this survey was conducted uh, and there were, it's a voluntary survey, so it's there is obviously some selection bias. I will also say too, before we start, that you know, any with any sort of survey answers, and there's obviously lots of biases involved in what you perceive, what you do, and what you don't do. So, you know, the, the data is what it is. It's the survey answers. And so, is it 100% accurate? Probably not. Uh, when people think they do certain things, we all have these people we know at, at work, right, that think they're working harder than they are, or they work longer longer hours, or something's out, someone's out to get them or whatever. And so we all deal with these sorts of people. And so physicians are people too. And so it's entirely possible that there's bias entered in and, you know, it depends on what mood you're in when you fill out surveys and, you know, depends how you're going to answer a question. So with all that said, and the fact that this survey has been conducted four times, we would hope that there's some sort of consistency to the survey results in the sense that, you know, everyone's got a bad day every once in a while, but they're not going to every you know, every time over four years. So in 2018, 9,000 physicians respond to this survey. So it's a fairly large sample. Uh, when you look at the demographics as far as male versus female, physicians, 66%, two-thirds of physicians are male and a third are female. Putting that in perspective, it's uh, interesting because in in if you look at the medical students that are currently enrolled right now, it's about a 50-50 split. And so not surprisingly, if you look at 
physicians in medicine, it had a much more uh, heavily dominated male influence even 20 years ago. And if you can assume that as far as physicians, after four years of medical school, probably everyone who goes into medical school is going to become a physician. And if you look at the numbers in medical school in 1981, which is, boy, now it's 37 years ago, uh, it was a 12% female to male ratio. So clearly the type, the the ratio of men and women has changed, and you're seeing that throughout all of medicine. Uh, and it has changed the nature of medicine and certainly some of the interactions, social interactions that occur in professional settings, somewhat challenged and it's a little bit different than it was, obviously, back in 1980. Uh, I think probably and the types of women who are in medicine has changed somewhat uh, from 1980s. I think when you are the trailblazing person and you're one of, you know, you're sort of bucking the trend, it attracts a different sort of person and personality or you have to have different personality traits. And so I think you're clearly seeing a difference in um, the types of women who are in medicine. I feel like when I uh, interact with medical students and residents, there is, uh, I guess, I don't want to say more normal, but it's, it definitely seems like a better cross-section of personality types within uh, with women. I think the um, in general, there are, women are a little bit more uh, assertive, I think, uh, because I think you just had to be to survive back in the 80s and 90s. And so, I mean, it's not, obviously, it's a bell curve, right? Not everyone's that way, but it certainly seems like the types of uh, w- women in med- medicine, and I would even say the types of men in medicine are, is changed somewhat. That's probably partly a cultural generational difference, but it definitely seems like since there are so many more women in medicine, you're seeing a lot different types of people in, involved in medicine, which is probably a good thing. Uh, when you look at the medicine and you look at residency and, and you look at the women and where they are concentrated, it's not an even, I mean, there's not an even split for women in medicine, especially as you'd expect. Uh, so you'll see a, fem- a female dominance in certain specialties. Family practice, for instance, about 55% female. Uh, when you look at the most recent numbers, internal medicine is 43%, so that's still male dominated. But you look at things like pediatrics, it's 73% women. And obstetrics and gynecology is 83% women. And this is, I think, a reflection of interest uh, for women. I think uh, you're in probably your exposure to physicians. And I think just it's just general interest. Uh, and so it's not surprising. And, and uh, how that affects other specialties probably just varies uh, based on the kind of specialty. So when you look at the age of a physician, the average age is 52.3 years. Yes, that means people are out of practice, out of, sorry, excuse me, out of residency about 20 years or so, if you assume you're about 30 when you get done. And so then when you're in practice, what is your model of practice? Are you independent, uh, which is someone who is not employed by a hospital system or an academic center? And that's 31.4%. Um, back in 2012, when the survey was first conducted, it was 48.5%. So you can see a significant shift. That's about a quarter of the people who were previously in in independent practice, self-described independent practice, are now an employed model. And uh, if you look at the independent docs and where their age is, the independent physicians who are over the age of 46 are 37.6%. Those who are 45 and under, 17.7%. So you definitely see a huge disparity in the independence and the sort of the employed model that younger physicians are far more likely to be employed. Than independent. And the same could be said when you look at a split by, between male and 
uh, females. Men, about 23.6% are independent, and females, 35.4%. And again, that is hard to explain for sure, except you could say it could just, it's probably specially specific. Uh, if you look at primary care versus specialties, the primary care, 22.5% are independent versus 34.1% of specialists. And that's not, a, that's not quite so surprising. It's a little bit harder for hospital systems and, um, and there's probably a better ability to be independent in some ways for specialties. Certainly if you're in a um, specialty service provider where you do not have a patient load, like mine, anesthesia, radiology would be another one, pathology, ER services. If you don't have a dedicated patient population that you are bringing to a health system, frankly, they don't care as much about you because they can, they're going to get the patients whether you're there or not. You, they just need the service and they need those services provided. And they don't much care uh, because you don't who you are and specifically, at least of owning you because there's not an advantage economically for a health system. And you'll see this breakdown. We're going to go through this survey that you'll see there's an age breakdown, young and old doctors, and I'm barely in the cusp of young. So 45 and under, and then you see over 46 or 46 and over. You see the male-female discrepancies, primary care versus specialist, and then you just see independent and employed. Those are sort of the different sort of the juxtapositions for the different, uh, get an idea for the various questions and sort of how people respond and where people are. So do docs think hospital employment is a good idea? And this is kind of an interesting question. 57.5% of physicians think hospital employment is not a good thing for medicine, which is still a majority. But what's interesting is if you look at the same question asked in 2012, 75.6% of physicians thought it was not a good idea. So the, um, the general trend of physicians is to think that employment's eh, okay for medicine. So what about employed physicians? I mean, you'd think employed physicians are going to have a greater acceptance of employment, but you still you'll see 34.6% of physicians who are employed think that employment is not good for medicine. And uh, that comparison to 2014, where they're 44.7%. So even that has gotten better. But it's still surprising that over a third of physicians who are employed think employment's a bad idea. If you look at ages, it really breaks out interestingly because you'll see if you're 45 or under, 42.7% of physicians think employment's a bad idea. But if you look at people who are over 46, it's 64.1%. So it's definitely more tolerated and thought to be better if you're a younger physician versus an older physician. But what's interesting is those are people who think that it's a bad idea, but if you look at the other numbers, the percentage of people who think it's a good idea, meaning it's good to be employed, is only 19.8%. So at best, people are indifferent or openly hostile to the idea of having physicians employed, even if you're employed. Uh, very few people think it's a good idea. I mean, you know, many people are just sort of neutral and like, well, whatever. But so... Uh, what about the relations that physicians have with hospitals? We've talked at length in this show about the friction between hospitals, administrators, and the goals of hospitals and their systems and the physicians in delivering the care. And uh, it's there's a lot of animosity between physicians and, and hospitals. If you look at those who are feel positively about the hospital relations, it's only 39.3% of those under the age of 15, 45. Those over the age of 45, it's 28.4%, so it's even worse. Uh, the male-female split, females tend to be a little more positive at 34.2%, men at 305 
employee physicians have a much more positive outlook of relations of that with a hospital at 39.6%, those who have owned their own practice at 21.5%. If you look at the split between primary care and specialties, primary care 36.4%, think it's a, have a positive relation, specialist 29.6%. Of course, the opposite of that is people who have a negative is significantly higher. And so even most of those that feel positively, there's a usually a majority who are still feel that there's a negative relationship with the hospital. So for instance, the specialists are 29.6% positive, or yes, positive and 49.1% negative. So let's talk about where, where physicians are. I mean, the size of medical groups. There are some really large medical groups in the country. Kaiser Permanente is the largest one, has 7,900 physicians. The next biggest would be Cleveland Clinic at 2138. And then actually, maybe Mayo's bigger if you consider the two campuses the same. But if you look at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, that's 1776. And the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, New York, the famous Mayo Clinic, or as my grandfather used to say, the Mayo Brothers, that had 1,674 physicians. Most physicians are not employed in, in groups that large. Uh, so when you look at the different places where pra physicians practice, and you look at solo practice, and they have a split down between two and five docs, and then they actually have many in between, but I'll just look at the two and five, 31 to 100 physicians, and then 101 plus. In 2018, 17.9% of physicians, which is actually much higher than I would have anticipated, are classified in solo practices. That is down from 2012 of almost 25%. So, you know, it's about a third decrease in, um, in the people who are practicing solo, but that's still a large percentage of the, of the physician population. Uh, people who are in the two to five practitioners is 23.3%. That's down from 26.2 in 2012, so pretty much the same. Those who are in a larger group of 31 to 100 physicians is up from 7.8% to now it's 11.1. And those who are in the mega groups that are 101 or greater, and that actually would include my group, has gone from 12.1 to 16.4%. So definitely some increase there. We've talked a lot in this podcast, and I think I've mentioned a few times for sure, is that the number one satisfier for physicians is the patient-physician relationship. It's by, and f by far and away the main reason people get into medicine and the thing that they find the most personally satisfying from a pro professional standpoint in their practice. But we're going to talk about morale, and you'll see how that sort of, if that is your primary um, uh, mover, how is morale important in this whole process? So it's first important to kind of think about when you look at the numbers of physicians and, and what they do. I mean, if you look at from an economic standpoint, on average is estimated, these are all 2015 averages, that a, a physician supports $3.1 million in per capita economic output. Now, these are kind of, I don't know, maybe a little phony baloney, like how many times you would get coffee and then that person's going to you know be able to afford something. But anyway, that is estimated to be up $2.2 million from just 2012. Uh, likewise, uh, physicians now support 17, <clears throat> 17 jobs, uh, which is up from 14 in 2012. And I would like to say that I think a lot of that is just the extra support ancillary staff that's probably adding no economic value or medical value to the the um, to the entire healthcare delivery system. And it could be entirely a reason that there's all this mo extra money going in and that the physician technically brings in an economic output that is actually not providing any sort of actual quality or any sort of care. But that's just my commentary. Uh, if you look at the amount paid into wages and benefits, the average physician pays $1.4 million in wages and benefits, which is up from $1.1 in 2012. 
and the average physician bring, brings in $126,129 in state and local taxes, which is up from $90,000 in some change in 2012. So, so then the important thing about this is there's a big, huge impact for having physicians and <clears throat> where are they and, what are, and how are they feeling? Because you want physicians around because they obviously provide, aside from taking care of people, there's, there are other aspects that are make useful. So what is a prof- professional morale by the type of doctor? So who feels positive about being in medicine? Well, it, about 57.4% of under 45 physicians feel positive about medicine versus 39% of those over 45. For males, about 45.3% are positive versus only 43.8% of women. So again, if you look at those, that split, that is means both are majority upset with medicine. And how about those who are employed? Those who are employed tend to be a little bit happier at 51.5%. Those who are owners of their own practice at 36.7%. I think you could explain that a lot of different ways. Probably a lot of it is to do with the extra regulatory hurdles and the stress of making payroll and those sorts of things as a sole proprietor or an owner of a practice. Primary care and specialists, pretty much an even split. 46% primary care are positive about um, their morale and, and 44% is specialist. So in general, they're both negative in morale. So how about you ask docs, and I think probably a lot of us have done this, You know, would you pr- recommend to your kids or to your says so other children, you know, young people you meet. What do you think about the medical profession? Is it something that you think is you know, doing well or not? <clears throat> and in general, it's not too, it's not very good. Only 51.3% in 2018 would recommend it to their children or other young people. Now, that is up from 42.1% in 2012, which I find real interesting uh, because I don't feel like I've seen a whole lot of difference, except I would say the sky is falling from Obamacare sentiment has definitely diminished in at least the, the circles of people that I talk to in medicine, surgeons and anesthesiologists and um, internists and I've, other people I talk to. So I think, I think you'll see a lot of these numbers. We'll go over a couple later on, too, where you'll notice that there's a significant difference between 2012, where I think there was definitely that impending doom, because you don't know how the... Uh, Affordable Care Act is going to be implemented. Uh, and if you if you look at that as far as making recommendations for medicine as a career, there's really no difference in the cohorts, uh, except outside of saying that men are more positive than women. So men are about 53%, women are about 48.2%. And then how many are optimistic about the future of medicine? And this is what I think you'll see, that you'll definitely see the numbers again. So in 2018, how many people are positive about medicine and the future of medicine? Only 38.4% of physicians are, po- are feel positive about the future of medicine. So 61% feel uh, negatively about the future. Now, in 2016, it was 37, so pretty much no change. In 2014, it was 44%, so people much more optimistic. In 2012, 31.8%. So the lowest number of optimism for the future was in 2012. Again, I think this has a lot to do with the implementation of Obamacare. And I think in 2014, people were hopeful that there would be some dismantling of it. And so I I don't know that there... I think the people who were supportive of Obamacare were probably no different as far as they were their feelings on medicine in the future. But those who were 
optimistic about its dismantling, probably became more optimistic. And by the time we got to the present day, they've become dis- <laughs> they've become discouraged again. And it's quite possible that people in 2012 were overly, <clears throat> excuse me, overly negative about the future of medicine and uh, and the implications of the Affordable Care Act and how it would affect the profession. And I think, likewise, you're seeing that their numbers have improved somewhat, although in general, people are fairly pessimistic about the future of medicine. So now we're going to talk about why physicians are dissatisfied with medicine. Um, number one dissatisfier, and you talk to any doctor, and I'm almost certain this will be the number one too, is the electronic health records, design interoperability, or failure <laughs> to operate properly. 39.2% of physicians find that the most irritating part of uh, their practice. Uh, in March 20, 2016, in the Health Affairs Magazine uh, journal, it was estimated that physicians spent $15 billion per year documenting quality measurements and 3.9 hours per week in addition to their other paperwork. That's sort of the normal charting that you would have, you would have to do, prior authorizations, all that kind of stuff. So an additional four hours a week of time spent, or let's say if you're working 40 hours a week, which physicians are, but let's say you're working 40 hours a week, a tenth of your time is spent doing kind of additional nonsense, just charting and stuff, and you're spending $15 billion a year. I mean, obviously, there's lost productivity and costs in there as well. So when you ask docs about EHR, how does it affect your practice? Has it decreased efficiency? 56% of physicians say it is it is diminish the efficiency. Has it worsened the patient interaction? 65.7% of physicians say yes. So if the number one satisfier for physicians is the relationship with the patient, and we've somehow cut into the interaction you have with patients, then absolutely it's going to be a huge dissatisfier, have these electronic health records. And if you're doing additional work for documenting quality measures that, again, we'll get into a little bit later, most physicians don't believe have any uh, benefit and don't show any benefit to their to the health of their patients, then you're going to get a huge dissatisfier from these. And then also, EHRs were sold as a way of increasing efficiency. What EHRs have been very good at is increasing bill capture. And so your ability to capture charges for you know materials used, trays, drapes, medications, those sorts of things, it has helped that, but it has not helped in the efficiency of delivering care for people. And so I want to just have you take a thought experiment here. So let's say we have this this EHR and we're saying it's going to it's causing four additional hours per week of just additional just non-useful clinical time. If I take those 4 hours and now I'm seeing patients instead of spending 4 hours documenting additional quality measures that are of no value you've alleviated some of the physician shortage that we have in this country, right? And so you've added 10% to my productivity just by getting rid of the electronic health record. Now, I would speak for myself personally as an anesthesiologist that we use primarily uh, the EHRs. Our our contact with it has been very limited in the sense that it actually helps probably with our charting in the OR. It records all the data that I would have to write down normally. Um, and so... It generally is probably helpful to us there. I think finding information is challenging, and um, there's a lot of information that that we receive that is of is dubious value, or certainly it's very difficult finding the the, per, the salient information that you really need to take care of patients. Sometimes, so the number two dissatisfier for physicians, 
not surprisingly, and it's probably been consistent since it's the first physician wrote something down on a piece of paper, is the regulatory and insurance requirements. Uh, and this is just the red tape, right? This is the prior authorizations, which we'll have a future episode on. Uh, but 37.7% of physicians said that was a major dissatisfier. So you have EHR, which is almost 40%, and you have regulatory and insurance requirements about 38%. So that's almost 80% of your of the main dissatisfiers are those two. Uh, it, healthcare is probably the most high, highly regulated industry. It's maybe not, but it's got to be close. I'm not. I, I know at least with Medicare alone, there's 10,000 pages of regulations. So I can't imagine that there's anything that's much more regulated than medicine. And so climbing those hurdles takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, and effort that oftentimes does not seem to be of any use to anyone. Also, they did ask about MOC, and this is one of those questions that's new. It didn't, they didn't start asking this until 2016. And I think it's really interesting. They asked the question, do you disagree, do you strongly disagree about whether MOC accurately assesses clinical ability? So if you think it doesn't assess clinical abilities very well, you disagree or strongly disagree. The percentage of physicians who disagreed or strongly disagreed is about the same. It was about 78% in 2016, and now it's about 70%, somewhere around 70%. But the people who strongly disagree has gone from 24% to 36%. And those who disagree have gone from 44 down to 37 uh, So it's very interesting, I think, that you have uh, far more people who are getting they're just more they're more solidified in their opposition to MOC and certainly in how negatively they view the process. And then a last question here too is about asking the ability for physicians to significantly influence a healthcare system. And so this is again a question that just asked for the last two years. So those amount of physicians who, despite being in the healthcare system, how often they think they're they have little or very little effect on influencing the system has gone from a pessimistic 59.2% to an even more pessimistic 62.5% in 2018. So you have physicians who feel like they are helpless, and almost two-thirds of physicians feel like they're helpless to make any meaningful changes to the healthcare system. So let's go with the satisfiers. Real briefly, as I mentioned before, the number one satisfier by leaps and bounds is the patient-physician relationship. 78.7% of physicians say that is the reason they're in medicine, so there's really hardly worth talking about anything else. Uh, interestingly, those who are younger, 45%, only, uh, 40, sorry, 45 years or younger, only 72% of them felt that was the main thing. For those 46 and above, 82% felt that that was the most important thing. When you look at the split between men and women, 77.3% of men thought that was the most important. Uh, for women, it's 813 those who are employed, 75.9% were thought it was the most important thing for own, people who own their own practices at 83.4%, primary care, 83.1%, and specialist, 756 So I think none of those are super surprising. I think you'd expect primary care physicians to value that relationship a little bit more than a specialist, just because if you don't like that, I don't know how you go into primary care and survive if you don't want to have a long-term relationship with patients. We talked briefly about the numbers of physicians, and I'm always uh, somewhat skeptical of the actual shortages that people talk about when it comes to physicians. Are there really, you know, 100,000 physicians short, and, you know, we make these projections? So all that being said, here, here is the projection that is being told. So the 
the projection of deficit of physicians by 2030, so that's 12 years from now, is 121,300. And so why are we going to be short physicians? Well, there are two reasons, always, right? Demand. So there's increased demand. If you look at that, you look at demand of uh, from population growth and then versus the physician growth. You know, between the years of 1987 to 2007, the population in the United States grew 24%. The physician population grew 8%. So assuming everyone's doing exactly the same as far as contact with with physicians, clearly you've had you have a significant shortage of physicians to maintain the same level of you know, the same ability to access and ability to see people. But if you look at also the other things, of course, supplies down, and there's been a decrease in FTEs and FTEs for shorthand for full time employment, so people working full time for the physicians. So what causes the drop in FTEs? Well. If we look at 2018 versus 2012, they asked physicians, what do you plan to do in the next three years? And so this is one of those questions where people, ah, I'm going to you know, retire, whatever, and then the you know, stock market goes down 10%, and like retirement suddenly looks a little bit harder, and so they may not do it. So you can take this all with a grain of salt, but it's going to give you the general sentiment of people three years you know, hence. So those who say there's going to be no change, 54% say they're not going to change anything with their how much they work. In 2012, it was 49.8%. So... More people were going to feeling to change then. Uh, how many people think they're going to cut back hours? Guess what? It was 22.3% in 2018. It was 22% in 2012. How many people are going to retire? 17% of those in 18 and 13% of those in 2012. Those who were moved to direct primary care or concierge service, 4.5% in 2018 versus 6.8% in 2012. How about people moving out of medicine, or at least to a non-clinical job, like administration? Well, about 12.5% in 2018 thought they might do that, about 10% in 2012. How many people are going to move uh, into an employed status? 4.3% in 2018 versus 5.6% in 2012. How many people are going to move to part-time? 8.5% in 2018 versus 6.5% in 2012. How many people are going to merge? This is really interesting. Only about 2.8% of physicians in 2018 thought they, were, they would merge with another group versus 26.2% in 2012. And so there's a reflection of how the market has changed and certainly how, and that I think also, there was a lot of uh, concern with, again, the Affordable Care Act freaked a lot of people out and they, they made a lot of decisions uh, when it came to merging and to try and get economies of scale and to try and avoid getting un uh, unemployed or having problems with meeting payroll and you know whether that bore out for them or not not sure but certainly less people are, are looking to merge and it, it may just be the types of groups and the kinds of groups that could merge have all merged at this point and there's really not not many left who haven't done it if you look at the amount of hours worked it has been dropping every two years they've done this survey in 2012 52.93 hours per week was the average workload for a physician that is now down to 51.4 hours. Well, that's only 2.4% decline. And so that'll become important in just a little bit. If we look at who's working the hours, well, if you're young, the young cohort, it's 54.73 hours per week. So the young bucks are working 55 hours. And the older docs are working 49.89 hours a week. 
Men work 51.89. Women work 50.46. I was a little surprised by that. I thought women worked a little bit less hours in general, but it turns out it's about the same. Uh, those who are employed, 53.73 hours. Those who own their own practice, 51.96. That surprised me a little bit too. I expected that people who had their own practice would work a little bit more hours than people who are employed, uh, especially when you look at the productivity numbers and the amount of actual patients seen, which we'll get into in a moment. Uh, when you look at people in primary care, they work about 50.67 hours. Specialists work a little bit more, 51.76. And, you know, I that could almost be attributed just to the fact that specialists are out there in surgical specialties and in procedural specialties that the hours are a little bit less reliable, I guess you'd say, than a clinic hour. So how many hours are spent in non-clinical paperwork? Well, this is what you don't want a physician spending much time in if you want them to actually get any, see any patients. So in 2012, there are 12 hours, and 2018, 11.37. So it's a decline, but still you're seeing about 23% of the hours worked by physicians are spent in non-clinical paperwork. Women spend 12% more time on paperwork than men, which is very interesting. And it's not clear from the survey, and they make a few suggestions of why that is, whether women document more, they're more fastidious about it, hard to say. Uh, or they just, they could also, they're probably also a younger cohort uh, because they're, the women tend to be, you know, clumped in the, the younger age group. And the younger people tend to do more non-clinical paperwork than the older people. And that's probably just because you train, you learn more of the documentation that's that's more important. It's, it's more of an emphasis on documentation, I think, if you're a younger physician. So I suspect that's probably part of it. And there's probably differences in men and women and that women may just write a little bit more. Not sure, but that's one of those interesting things that, I don't know, maybe someday we'll figure out what that is. Primary care spends 10% more time on paperwork than specialists. And this is not surprising because I've heard the surgeons do their op notes. They certainly are <laughs> pretty fast. Um, and so then how about non-clinical duties, say hours spent? If you look at people who are employed versus the people who own their own practice, and that's, these are the two cohorts they, they compared, there is one consistency whether you look at 2012, 14, 16, or 18 numbers. It's always about one and a half hours more spent by employed physicians than ones who own their own practices. And actually in 18, it's about at one hour exactly. But one of the advantages of moving to an employed practice as far as people who, when they, you're thinking about it, is that you, you get away from all that stuff that you don't have to do anymore. You don't have to do all the administrative work, work on payroll and making sure the computers are working and pay the rent and do all that kind of stuff, that non-clinical stuff. But guess what? When you become employed, you're doing more of it. Not clear entirely why that is. One would suspect it has to do with the larger bureaucracies that you have to deal with these larger healthcare systems. Uh, there's all kinds of clinical teams and quality assurance teams and all sorts of things, you know, ad hoc committees. And they have to be staffed by someone, and so it's not surprising that, you know, the docs get roped into them because you have a vested interest in what the outcome is. You're not going to let just anybody sit on those committees because you want to, you're, it's going to affect your workflow. And so that's probably why more time is spent in non-clinical duties, even if you're employed, which is one of the reasons people go into employment. Yeah, anyway, that's just what it is, I guess. And so how many patients do... Do physicians see in a day? Well, this is going to obviously vary tremendously by specialty. 
and they didn't even break it down by specialty. I mean, again, they're using the same broad categories that we're using from the start. But you take all the physicians in the country and clump them together, and then you can break them down by age and those things, and that's how they sort of figure out how many patients per day and to see if there's any change. And the answer is there are 20.2 patients seen per day by a physician. Now, that's down 2.4% from two <clears throat> from 206 well, again, that's a 2.4% decline, like we talked about earlier, and that's pretty much matches the hours worked earlier. And so you have 2.4% decline. You're like, eh, whatever. That's not a big deal. Oh, au contraire, my friend, because the physician see, or I should say have, 1 billion encounters a year in this country. 1 billion encounters. And so a 2.4% decline equates to roughly 2 million less visits in the United States per year. Well, now you're saying, well, that might be significant access problems, right? And that's true. And so if you look at who's having problems seeing all these patients, <laughs> or who's not seeing any, the young physicians are seeing less. They're seeing 19.8 versus the older physicians seeing 20.4. Pretty close, but a little different. Men see 21. Women see 18.7. Employed physicians see 20.1. And those who own their practice see 22.8. Now, these are, I think, pretty obvious why they would be that way. Uh, because uh, if you if you look at, at least when I talk to the employee versus the owners, if you're the owner of a practice, you have every incentive to see as many patients as you can. Employee physicians, many situations are paid salaries, or there's just not the compensation that makes it useful or worthwhile for them to see additional patients from an RVU standpoint. And so it's not surprising that they see less. What is interesting, though, is you see the... When you look at the young cohort, they only see 19.8 patients per day, which is less than the average of 20.2. What's really interesting about that, though, is on average, young physicians work 9% more hours. If you recall before, they're working 54.7 hours versus 49.8. So they're working 9% more hours, almost 10% more hours, and they're seeing less patients. So they see 3% less patients. But... That's very interesting, and <clears throat> one wonders why that is. But if you go back to, you you recall that they spend a lot of time in non-clinical duties as well, and they spend more time in paperwork. So one would expect that they're, maybe because of the documentation, that they're just getting less seen. So, you know, whether that's you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's just that's just what the thing is. One of the problems with access is, people who use government payers, both Medicare and Medicaid. And so who sees these people, or who doesn't see, is probably more the more appropriate question. When you look at people under the age of 45, 20.2% limit or don't see Medicare patients versus 20.1% for 46, so no change. When you look at men, 19.5% don't see Medicare or limit Medicare visits versus 26.8% of women who limit or don't see Medicare patients. If you look at employed versus owner physicians, employed physicians don't see or limit Medicare patients by 16.8%, and for the owners, it's 28.3%. If you look at primary care versus specialists, primary care, 32%, versus specialists, 17.2%. I think if you look at generally across the board, when you look at... Um, compensation levels for specialists, it is not terrible for Medicare, usually. I'd say Medicare payments for anesthesiologists in specific, not that anyone's going to cry me a river, 
but is very poor. But for most special, surgical specialists, it's actually pretty decent. Uh, not so for primary care. And so this is why you find lots of uh, seniors who have trouble finding primary care physicians, or it's really tough to get in to see them. It is interesting that women are so much less um, accessible to Medicare patients. Uh, but I wonder if that also is because they are in predominantly um, maybe like a pediatric or OB setting where you're not going to have much Medicare, in, obviously, in the pediatric setting. And so that's why they don't or they limit it. And so that may have less to do with the fact that they, the fact that they um, that just won't see it versus they just don't have those types of patient populations anyways. And so that's why they really don't see Medicare. They don't even contract with them. Uh, when you look at Medicaid, so Medicaid is different. Medicare is paid for by the federal government, and that's for seniors. And when you look at Medicaid, Medicaid is a, a grant that's go, partly paid by the state and partly paid by the federal government. And its payment reimbursement is significantly worse than than Medicare. I think for, I want to say for anesthesia, it's like a third maybe of what Medicare is. And Medicare is about a third or maybe half of what a commercial is. It just kind of depends. Um, so if you look at Medicaid, you have 21.6% of young physicians limit Medicaid versus 36% of older physicians. 33.1% of male physicians don't see or limit Medicaid versus 28.8% of women. Uh, employed, 20.1% limit Medicaid. And for those who own their own practices, 52.7%, a majority, limit or, don't, or do not see Medicaid patients. Primary care, it's 35.6% limited, and specialist, 29.7%. And again, there are a lot of, and I think a lot of reasons for this is because the specialists are, their payment is usually a little bit better for Medicaid. Uh, but, you know, that's on the margin, I suppose, on the average. But it, it is stark, the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, if you look at the numbers for the employed, it's pretty much the same. Medicare limits to 16.8, Medicaid is 20.1. But for owner uh, physicians who own their own practice is 28.3 to 52.7. Clearly, Medicaid is a gigantic financial loser. And before people get up in arms and grab the pitchforks and the torches, it's important to note that the payment is so poor for Medicaid that if a practice, and, and for most medical practices, primary care especially, you're looking at 60-70% overhead. If you're going to suddenly take 10-15% Medicaid, you can't keep the lights on. I mean, you can see as many patients as you want, but they are losers. And so even though you want to try and help people and see them, you just can't. And generally, Medicaid patients are much much more challenging in the sense that they have a higher no-show rate. There are all kinds of other socioeconomic factors going into play that, that really make it tough to run an efficient clinic. And so there are all kinds of reasons not to see Medicaid, but that's just the tough thing about it, that it's hard to, to see them even though you want to because, quite frankly, you, you can't keep your business open. And so the large systems, like that's why the employee physicians will not be that much affected by it, they can get gigantic grants and, and oh, I don't want to say bailouts, but they certainly get some subsidized support, either from academic institutions or just from the hospital system in, at, in, at large, which is why they have an advantage in some sense that they can um, see those patients over, versus, uh, over a primary uh, independent doc. So how about value? It's hard to know what to do for paying people because you want them to be treating people well. And so one of the new trends in medicine, maybe it's not new, but 
is to try and pay based on value. So I'm not going to pay just some schmo. I want to make sure that you're giving me valuable care. And so I'm going to actually, if I'm a hospital system, I want to make sure that you're not causing complications that are increasing the cost of my hospital. I want to make sure you're following the dictates of the hospital. And I want to make sure that you're providing value. Now, that's not just hospitals. I shouldn't, I'm not going to throw hospitals on the bus because insurers, insurance companies, certainly the Blue Care, um, Blue Cross, and the large insurance companies in the state are going to have all sorts of different metrics for making sure you vaccinate people, you check diabetics, you know, once a month or whatever, uh, and then you're doing all the preventative care at the appropriate time. I think all, you know, mostly valid, uh, valid concerns. But the, I'm not, and you can tell the way I'm talking about it, I'm obviously not someone who's involved in a lot of that because I just take care of people who come to the OR, right? Uh, but I know my wife is involved intimately in a lot of these things, the Blue Cross Blue Shield and, and other insurers in the state. Uh, so the percentage of docs who have some pay tied to value, and whether that's making sure you meet some sort of metrics or you're vaccinating the right amount of people, whatever, it's 53.1% of physicians who are younger versus 45.8% of older physicians. When you look at men, it's 46.3%, women 48.8%. So really about half of physicians are in some way have value tied to their pay. Now how that's defined totally depends on the person and how they answer the survey. Uh, when you look at those who are employed, it's 54.6% are tied to value versus those who own their own practice, it's only 412 <laughs> only. Primary care, it's 53%. Not surprising. Primary care are the, the front lines of the insurance companies trying to hold down costs. And the specialist, 43.4%. So still pretty high. So a lot of people are tied to value their pay. So how many of them actually think it makes a difference in how they practice or you know how the, they take care of their patients? Well, only 18% of physicians think it helps. 18%. Guess how many people disagree and think it's not helpful? 56.8%. And I bet if you made it easy for reporting and you didn't have to spend so much time gathering information, well, then it'd probably be a lot higher or it'd be a lot more people who think it'd be an okay thing to do. But it is so painful through the electronic health record for so many physicians and a lot of non-clinical time that is, again, not in any way helpful that it's going to cause a lot of disgruntlement from the physicians. Uh, finally, a couple little questions how many physicians are involved in telemedicine? This is where you do remote visits. About 20%, so a little bit higher than I would have anticipated. Uh, also, how many physicians are moving to DPC, direct primary care, or concierge? Or I should say are engaged in it. And if you're younger, under 45, it's 4.7%. If you're over 46, it's 7.5%, so a little bit higher. Men, 6.8%. Women, 6.4%, so pretty much the same. Employed, 3%. Owned practices, 14.1%. Again, that's not too surprising. You wouldn't expect a whole lot of employed docs. Uh, primary care, 5.9%. Specialists, 7%. I'm not sure, to be honest, I have not seen a lot of models for specialists who are in uh, direct primary care, although I guess you could argue that plastic surgeons oftentimes don't take any... Um, don't take any insurance, and they could maybe consider themselves in a concierge sort of setting. Perhaps an ophthalmologist who does lots of LASIK surgery. But most in, most physicians are involved in uh, the usual sort of healthcare delivery system. Uh, it's not surprising also that employed versus owner, 
owner uh, practices are three versus 14%, that you have, you know, five times the level for those who own their own practices. And I would probably argue if you said the 3% who are employed, those are probably all, those would all be classically defined as concierge by most people. So if you're in direct primary care, you're like, ah, you can't have these together, but they did for the survey. So, because direct primary care traditionally has been thought of to be totally insurance free and you're just like a membership based concierge would be an additional payment in, uh, and then you're taking insurance underneath as well. So, uh, and then finally, this kind of goes back to the last episode we just did on opioids. Are you prescribing fewer pain medications than you used to? Well, I don't think have to, anyone's going to be surprised by the answers from this, but if you look at physicians, it's about 70% are prescribing fewer pain meds than they were, and they just said in the past, in the past couple of years. So basically, have you decreased the amount of pain medications that you're prescribing? Those who are younger, 74.3% are prescribing less pain meds. Those are older, 66.8%. Men, 68.1%. Women, 71.4%. Those who are employed, 72% are, are doing less. I should say, they're prescribing less. <laughs> Hopefully, they're doing less drugs, too. Those who own their own practice, 63.5% less. Primary care, 77% uh, drop in uh, prescribing pain meds versus specialists at 64.5%. I mean, that could just be alone, just with the pain medication, the pain docs. Um and in talking to Dr. Grattan last episode, which I'll link back to in the uh, show notes as well, uh, there's definitely some validity probably to prescribing less pain medication than it was thought in the past. And so for that way, for that reason, I should say, it, it's probably not unreasonable that people are prescribing less. But a drop as by two-thirds shows the, um, the concern people have with the DEA. And there are people who've been charged with murder. In New York City, I think a couple docs face murder charges because their patients on pain medications overdosed. And so, for those reasons, uh, people are much less inclined to treat the pain with uh, opioids anyway. And, again, maybe not all bad, but uh, it definitely can make things a little bit more difficult for patients. And they oftentimes have to turn to other alternative means of finding pain relief, which is the street and unreliable sources of pain medication like heroin and laced with fentanyl and things like that. Well, this concludes the analysis of this survey. I hope you found it interesting. I think the big takeaways are, number one, the biggest satisfier for physicians is the patient-physician relationship, by far. And you talk to, and what I found is when I talk to other physicians and ask them that question, they're like, well, I don't know. And no one ever gets the right answer, but that's the reason they do it. But they ever <laughs> assumes everyone else has another reason why they went into medicine. And uh, they find the professional satisfaction. And even guys like me who just talk to people for five minutes before putting them to sleep, that is what I find the most satisfying is, is dealing with patients and occasionally getting, getting a good fishing hole. Although I don't, from an ethical standpoint, I'm not sure if I can ever use those because I've usually given people sedation when they give me the fishing holes. So I don't, maybe a physician can chime in and send me a note where they think uh, it's uh, okay to use that fishing hole. Um, the th- other thing is obviously the big dissatisfiers for physicians, electronic health records, which we talked about and addressed a couple times. And then also the regulatory burden of uh, insurance and just regulations in general and try to overcome those. And MOC, I would probably toss in with that as part of that regulatory burden for insurance companies too. Uh, so those are not surprising. I think the it, it's surprising to see the numbers of hours worked by young physicians versus older physicians. Not surprising. The decreased productivity of younger physicians is surprising that despite working more, they actually get less done. Uh, and that is probably a reflection of 
I think probably fastidiousness to the charting. Uh, and, you know, I guess you could argue one way or the other whether that's a good thing. Probably there's some middle ground somewhere that maybe the older docs aren't documenting enough or just not bothering with it because it's so hard with the electronic health record and they're, you know, I can, since I'm still that low young cohort, I guess I can say they're old and crotchety and they don't want to do all the extra work. But I th I think yeah, when it, they definitely are less... The other survey results show that they are less enthusiastic about medicine as they're older, uh, and then less, and they're more pessimistic. There are a lot of fields that I think people, I mean, everyone thinks about the golden days, you know, whenever they were younger and how things were better. I feel like there's a lot of pessimism in, in medicine. I, I noticed that when I was a medical student and as a resident, and now as a staff member, I mean, it's always changing. Uh, I don't know that it's changing for the better, which is, I think, the whole perception that it's negative and, pe and we're pessimistic about it. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you learned something. I hope you found it as interesting as I did to go through these numbers and to kind of figure out where physicians' heads are. And I hope you like the format and doing something a little different, and it was an interview. Now, if you're just waking up from your slumber, I guess I didn't do a very good job. But, but either way, I'd like you to send me back some feedback, if you could. You can go and do that right at theparadox.com slash 028 and just leave a comment. Or you can email me from the email link at the bottom of the website. Well, I don't want to keep you much longer. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Make sure you share it with your friends. And I'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.